The Dickheads are presented in color. Do you believe that the universe is irrational? like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from Massachusetts, Ohio, and San Diego to your brain hole. We are your uh, special dickheads today because we have two of your hosts, but we have probably um, the dickhead of greatest note uh, on the planet, or one of them, and Bill Cyril, who... Uh, not only um, uh, knew Phil, but had a book dedicated to him, and he's sick to death of talking about Maze of Death, but you might recognize his name from it because Phil uh, dedicated the book to him. So, Bill, welcome back to the Dickheads podcast. If you want more of Bill's story when we get done, you can go listen to our Vallis Incident uh, panel where he Mm -hmm. joined Tessa Dick and Ted Hand to talk about uh, Phil's 1974 experience. Welcome back to the Dickheads podcast, Bill. Thank you. I'm uh, actually not really wearing a pink shirt. It's fuchsia. Okay. <laughs> but I did wear it to the Vallis uh, performance uh, a few days ago. So, oh, um, yeah, I uh, uh, I won't say the book Maze of Death was dedicated to me. I mentioned in the acknowledgement next to uh, Bishop Pike, who of course became okay. Timothy Archer in his sure. last book. But uh, it all stemmed from the time that I was living with Phil for about a month in uh, Northern California. And uh, we had one of these late night rap sessions. You know, he was a night owl. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like a couple of, uh, a couple of students in, in college in their dorm, you know, talking about theories of the universe and creating a theology out of thin air out of uh, just some basic concepts of ontology and teleology. And a few months later, he called me up and said, hey, you know, I've written a book about it. And uh, it came out, it was Maze of Death. It came out actually in 1970. He told me, uh, I think it was in December of 68 that he told me he'd uh, written that up, which means he was a fast writer, of course. And uh, so we remained friends for the rest of his life, and uh, I was witnessed indirectly to some of the events in Vallis. So I, I have a bit of a perspective on what went on, and I'm certainly familiar with the book. I mean, my own personal opinion about the book is that the first part of it is uh, one of the most brilliant things he wrote because he was writing what was real, totally real. The invented parts having to do with uh, Brent Minnie and the Lamptons um, didn't resonate quite as strongly with me with me but i have to say that in this opera version that i saw at mit a few days ago the lamptons i thought were brilliantly uh portrayed and really came across as as real people uh, and costumed in punk outfits with black leather <laughs> it was uh, it was great to see them actually being visualized 
Well, we'll get so, into the, we'll get into the opera in a bit. But one other question right. I have before we get into this is, you're also you met Phil because you were a part of the science fiction community going way yes. back, and uh, um, I think some of our listeners would also be interested in the fact that, um, you know, for me, like one of my favorite authors is John Bruner, and you know, like I'll mention like a John Bruner book, you'll be like. Yeah, I had dinner with that guy, and I, I seethed with jealousy <laughs> at your uh, um, <laughs> your time in the. Science I'm just lucky. I, I had, you know, I had a number of connections um, that were sort of materialized out of thin air. Um, I used to know Isaac Asimov once from the time I interviewed him when I was a teenager in high school back in the '50s, and uh, we remained uh, friends for a while, and uh, then I. When I moved to, I was a friend of Paul Williams, who was became the executive for state for Dixie State, um, and published helped facilitate the publication of a number of his books, uh, especially Confessions of a Crap Artist. But I, um, uh, Paul and I, I mean, I knew Paul when uh, he was like fourteen or fifteen years old, because we were from neighboring towns and science fiction fans. And I met Dave Hartwell back then when. Uh, I was 20 and he was 21, so it goes back. We go back a long way with the science fiction community. And then Paul and I both went to California in 1968 to Bacon, the World Science Fiction Convention. We both met Phil Dick, and uh, I had corresponded briefly with Phil before then because I was, I mean, his writing was unique. There was no other science fiction writer of that era who was writing anything like what he did. I mean, it was that mainstream influence and that. Uh, even though uh, a lot of it was about his uh, conflicts with uh, female figures, you know, which can be interpreted today as, as misogyny, it was nevertheless uh, real in a way that other science fiction wasn't. And I was powerfully drawn to this combination of wild imagination plus uh, something that sounded mainstream or realistic. So I, I was corresponding with him and... Uh, and then I wound up, uh, I was at it. I was a graduate student at, in physics at Boston University at that time. And I had won a, a National Science Foundation fellowship to attend uh, a summer seminar in theoretical physics at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And afterwards, I had made a decision about whether I was going to go home, hitchhike to Chicago and protest the Democratic National Convention, or, or hitchhike out west to go to the World Science Fiction Convention. I'm happy to say I made the right choice yeah. because it changed my life forever, and I probably would have gotten my head broken in if I'd gone to to uh, Chicago. But uh, I met Phil at Bacon, and uh, he immediately invited me to live with him. And, yeah. And uh, one last general question: We'll get into the um, Vallis Opera. Yeah. Um, I just I think for people, also the I think I'm getting into Professor Wilson's head here, but. Um, as a person who knew Phil, what do you? I know this is a kind of a big question, but how do you process like the fame that he has gotten after his death and the scholarship that has arisen from, you know, his work? Like, I think, you know, it's really fascinating to think about and sad that he didn't get to see it. But as your as his friend, how how do you process that? I, you know, he was a prophet. And uh, and probably a precog as well, on some level. 
he always, you know, he's always, he was denied the kind of attention and fame he would have liked and only got it very late in his life and only got a little taste of it. And even when Blade Runner came out, it still took 10 years or more before he started getting some cachet in Hollywood and elsewhere. But uh, there's no question he anticipated much of the present world. And it's uh, and including all of, including its paranoia, its conspiracies, its uh, it, it, the uh, the notions around uh, a whole range of notions having to do with AI on one hand and the surveillance state on another, and uh, and also a uh, sort of um, a, a literal divine invasion at the reenchantment of the world, you know, a, a spiritual call. I think he was a spiritual mentor to a lot of us in the early 60s, Paul Williams, me, and other friends of ours, who, um, who were influenced by, for example, A Man in the High Castle, which was our introduction to, uh, to Carl Jung, to Taoism, uh, and to the I Ching. I mean, that, was, that had a powerful effect. So he was, um, in a sense, <laughs> I call him Saint Phil because he's like this, <laughs> this imperfect saint in the same way that, that uh, uh, that Sartre called uh, Jean Genet, you know, a saint. Uh, it, it's, uh, he, he brought something special into the world, as flawed and as damaged as he was. I'm not calling him crazy. I think he was very sane in many ways, but definitely he was damaged goods. And really, as we all are, I mean, uh, he, he really spoke about the kinds of... Uh, alienation that each individual can have about the impact of, I think in one of his books he describes uh, a, a, the family its parents is like fish in the sea banging into the, uh, their, their, uh, their offspring. We've all been, uh, we're all in this ocean in which we've been influenced by uh, psychic forces that have shaped our world and shaped us individually and now we're dealing with this worldwide mess that has got to be cleaned up. So it's a great time for the reappearance of uh, Sophia or some other aspect of holy wisdom that can restructure our world. And I think that was his, his looking for a savior is really what that's about. And you see that in his Tagore letters, anticipating uh, he was talking about, uh, you know, environmental pollution from uh, nuclear activity. Well, we have a lot more than that to worry about now. But I think he was a prophet in that regard, too. And and the, the key part of this is he wasn't a pessimist, although he certainly battled pessimism at times. It was also the sense that um, he believed in something. He believed that the world could be saved, renewed in some fashion. And uh, I, that's, a, that's a really, I think, the key to understanding him in the midst of all this darkness there's the possibility of hope, of grace, of renewal, of rejuvenation. And that's really what Ubik is all about, even though at the end he pulls the rug out from everybody's feet. So, uh, yeah. so can I, can I yeah, just say uh, one thing and then uh, a biographical question if I yeah. Bill. <clears throat> it's one thing I'm discovering is I get more and more immersed in the Philip K. Dick community. You know, everybody's drawn to him and his literature for, for kind of different reasons, but almost invariably, especially for a proper dickhead, it in some way informs their identity. There's something about uh, PKD that kind of rubs yeah. off on people. Yes. Um, when you were, this is uh, uh, 
uh, that's just kind of a follow up to what you were saying. But when you were younger, interacting with these various science fiction folk, uh, uh, yeah. like Williams and and uh, you mentioned Hartwell and some other people. What were your ambitions at that time? Was it were you just a fan? Were you a uh, uh, did you want to be a journalist um, or was it all you're a scientist, right? What, did you always? Well, I, I was a fan. Um, I was also a bit of a Renaissance man. And so I was uh, I was a critic. I was started writing around uh, 1963 and uh, contributed to. Uh, in fact, I became a film and music critic for uh, a paper that ultimately became the Boston Phoenix. Um, before it died about um, 2012 or 2013. I'm sorry, yeah, 2013. Um, So the the Phoenix actually was a great hotbed for developing writers. Uh, People, other people who uh, wrote for them went on to considerable acclaim as critics, Janet Maslin at the New York Times, Owen Gleiberman, uh, a whole David Thompson, a whole range of uh, different authors passed through there, uh, Stephen Schiff, who became a, a writer, and then a, a critic, a film reviewer, and then actually started writing films. Uh, so it was a great place to learn and practice writing. I was involved early on, but I was also a graduate student in physics, so I had to, I, I didn't want to pursue, I loved, I loved cinema, I loved music, and I wrote about them whenever I could. It was a great way to get in free to see different shows. <laughs> but I, I didn't pursue the writing per se, although I developed my writing chops doing that kind of journalism. I learned how to write uh, for a paper that didn't pay anything, but eventually you know, grew into something substantial. So the last piece I wrote for the Phoenix before they died was the in uh, October 2012 when I reviewed the uh, the uh, uh, PKD conference at San Francisco State that David Gill had organized. And I wrote up, uh, the paper asked me to write uh, 600 words about my friendship with Phil. There's no way I could fit that into 600 words, but they accepted 800 and put it in smaller type. And that's what you'll see is Philip K. Dick was a friend of mine, that paper that's available on Academia. I copied, I made sure that it, copies would be available after the paper went down. So um, yeah, and it's a great article. So tell us the story about how you ended up at this this well, um, performance. I missed the performance that was held at MIT in '87. Now the story was originally it was it was commissioned by the Pompidou Center in France, Paris, um, at the Aircom. The I forget what Aircom stands for. It's something about the Consortium for Acoustics and Music. It was international research. That's I-R-C-A-M. Um, and it was uh, it was performed there, and that's what the recording that you can still find, even on YouTube, is uh, was recorded through the, at that performance. Um, I missed I missed seeing it or hearing it in '87 when it played in Cambridge. And so when I saw Cliff's announcement that that copying you that it was playing that week, that very weekend in Cambridge. And uh, I figured, oh no, I've missed it again. <laughs> and I checked all the, it was free. All the tickets had been given out. So what I wound up doing is out of desperation, I posted a request on uh, everything is free page uh, from in my town, Arlington, which is not even where I think I could find a ticket because, you know, it wasn't Cambridge, even though it's Cambridge adjacent. Um, 
and I just put I described the situation and asked if anyone knew of a ticket or had a ticket or whatever. And the second person who responded was a friend of Todd McOver's, the composers. And she put me in touch with Todd. And Todd said, go talk to my assistant, Clemence, which I did. I sent her all the information. I have a number of other connections with Todd, which is curious. It's all, it's all synchronicity. Um, and uh, so I wound up uh, getting in. I got myself a prime seat. And it worked out very well. The um, and also, I got a chance to talk to Todd and the singers and the people, the producer and the director afterwards. Uh, a lot of them are really fascinated by Philip K. Dick, and they want to know how to become dickheads. <laughs> so I said, you already are. <laughs> yeah. But they want to connect with the community. So there's some people who will be joining, I'm sure, um, the various groups. But um, so the curious part about this, the synchronicities involved, is that the woman who, who read my, who lived in my town, who was a friend of Todd Macover's, turned out to be someone who was a friend, a close friend of friends of mine who'd been roommates 50 years ago, and who also were friends of, uh, with Paul Williams. Uh, and, um, and the irony is that back in 2012, uh, when I was, uh, wrote up that review of the, uh, of the San Francisco State Philip K. Dick conference, I was staying with those same friends that I lived with 50 years before, but now they were in El Cerrito, California. And I'm walking down from their house to San Pablo Avenue, and there's a, a grate, a sidewalk grate in the sidewalk that somebody has written Vallis on. That was in 2012, I found. So if, at that time, I commented, I'm being pursued by memes of Philip K. Dick. But now the connection is even more deeply interwoven with these people who, um, you know, my roommates, my old roommates being connected to the woman who connected me to Vallis. So it's just, uh, you know, it's what Will Morgan calls synchromysticism. And synchronicity plays a very big part, of course, in, in, uh, in all of Phil Dick's work and especially in, in Vallis. Uh, one of the things I wanted to comment on was, uh, you know, the, there are reasons why you can see why Vallis, the book would be of interest to uh, to uh, uh, Todd Macover as an experimental composer. For one of them, one of them is the, the notion of Brent Minnie, who is uh, modeled in some sense after Brian Eno. But uh, the, uh, the Phil describes Minnie in Vallis as uh, Kevin's Kevin Jeter saying. Does Minnie mean Brent Minnie anything to you? He did the music. Minnie works with computer created random sounds, which he calls synchronicity music. Right. So, well, this is one of the questions that I have directly for you on this is like, what do you think Phil would have thought of the opera? I think he would have been more into this than he would have been a lot of the films, especially the yeah. films that turned into action movies, which probably would have, like, I don't know how Phil would have felt about, you know, Total Recall, for example, even though I'm a fan of Total Recall. I know, yeah. And also... I, I, yeah, I know what you mean, however, but uh, yeah, I I thought there were maybe five or ten minutes of Total Recall, which were really right on, <laughs> but the uh, um, I, I doubt he would have liked the whole movie. I think he would have liked the opera. I think it would have captured his inner sense of what the music should sound like, just the same way that when he saw the rushes for Blade Runner of the scenes in... 
you know, uh, I guess L.A., he, he thought, yeah, that's what my inner vision was. He really captured it, even if the rest of the movie was uh, a diversion from what he'd originally written and he didn't care for it. But the, the he liked the visuals the same way I think he would have liked the uh, the music in in the opera. So it's in a, in a way it's a shame he never got to hear it because it would be kind of a realization of his own inner vision or own inner sounds. And I think he would have been entranced with the way the, the Lamptons were portrayed, portrayed, at least in the version that I saw. What was the, the opera, um, like the first thing that came to my mind is, you know, why not, for instance, uh, a, a play or a popular musical? Why an opera? Was was Todd, was Todd the one that wrote it? In yes, the- yeah, well, well, he describes it, and I, you know, I'm still planning, we have to get together. He wants to meet me, and I want I want to ask him questions about it. From what from what I've read, the description was that he was living in Paris at the time. You know, he spent about seven years there uh, at IRCAM, that uh, and, and developing new music. Uh, and he's an interesting background because he's both uh, technologically oriented and in terms of experimental sounds, but also has a real harmonic sense. I mean, he's got a background. He worked. He studied under Roger Sessions and Elliot Carter, uh, great prominent musicians. He wanted he, he wanted to uh, uh, bring something of the, the musicality and the of uh, Charles Ives, for example. He wanted to realize that. So he had he and he's he's brought up his. I think his father was a computer was involved with computers. His mother was a pianist. He played the cello, but he got he also played in a rock band. So he's got this diverse aspects, Todd Macover did. And he was in Paris looking for apparently looking for a book uh, on technology and humanity. And as he describes it, Vallis fell into his hands and he got more than he bargained for. That was his quote. So oh, it okay. seemed like it it's almost like he was looking for something and then he found it and then found even more than he'd been looking for right and so well and another thing about opera is we wouldn't have phil the science fiction writer i think without opera because it was the conversations over opera between him and tony boucher at the record store in berkeley mm-hmm. that you know kind of sparked their friendship and phil has said many times that he had kind of felt he had grown past science fiction until he met Tony Boucher and saw like here's a respectable guy who yeah. I like who's not writing kids stuff he's writing really great science fiction and you know yeah. now we have what we have and so I think opera plays a role in Phil's story not just yes in the and also spirituality he used also spirituality he used to talk about Tony Boucher and himself as being the at least he told me this the uh, the two religious nuts in the Bay Area. <laughs> that's hilarious well and so. well and i think tony one of the things too that i learned from just like walking around berkeley too was that that record store that he worked at was yeah. a very short walk from tony boucher's house so yeah. i imagine cool. that you know he was in the record store a lot and they had yeah. a lot of because i know phil had that kind of agoraphobia about going to the thursday night workshops but that didn't mean that Phil didn't have, um, you know, a uh, you know a connection to him in that regard. But anyways, yeah. back to back to the to this. Well, I did want I did want to mention one thing about opera since you mentioned that um, one of the big. I mean, he, 
Phil learned to uh, really appreciate Wagner, but in particular Parsifal. And um, Parsifal, I believe, is mentioned in Vallis, but it's also as a theme in some of his, at least in the exegesis and in some of his other works, where he, you know, it's the pure fool who becomes uh, enlightened in a sense, but it's also, you know, through a journey. But uh, it's also his very important concept about uh, uh, time becoming space that he repeat he repeats throughout some of his works and 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 really um the exegesis a lot of that is about time the nature of time so the um parsifal uh, apparently todd mac macover said he was greatly influenced by parsifal to include um include it in some fashion in this opera i specifically i saw there was a scene in which um the the horse lover fat it was was it him or okay, I'd have to consult my notes. Uh, someone I, it could be uh, the woman who's portraying um, Gloria is uh, is reading uh, from a uh, the score to Parsifal and there are references to it in the text. Uh, but the, clearly Parsifal played a role from what Todd McAver has, has said and also from what I could see in the uh, in the production. It was another influence. So that's that's a, a Phil Dickian influence that got really well conveyed, I think. And now you so, were saying that you thought that the recording is actually just purely listening to the recording it might be a better experience than and seeing it live. What, well, what did you mean by that? Let's say this. First of all, I think the music is brilliant. I think Todd McElroy is a, a remarkable, remarkable composer that he's able to make something very highly listenable and understandable and comprehensible. But the production that I saw was uh, somewhat incomprehensible, even though I was familiar with the story. I talked to uh, uh, Lloyd Schwartz, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, a critic who was actually followed me as a critic for the, the paper that became the Boston Phoenix. And he was as confused about parts of it as I was, uh, even though he liked the music. So it's, I think the problem is this, you couldn't print the whole libretto, which is adapted from the book, including chunks of it that are literally quoted word for word. You couldn't print the whole libretto uh, in the program book. And at least in the recording, You've got the original recording. You have like a 64-page booklet with a lot of detail, and the, the, so you can follow along exactly who's singing what. Part of the confusion in the new production was that um, the the director Jay Scheib, who's the director of I guess um, uh, theater at the Media Center, uh, wanted to do something a bit experimental, and what he did was uh, just like Horse Lover Fat and Philip K. Dick are two sides of the same person. The person doubled in effect. Um, he doubled many of the characters there. So Sophia, who appears as, uh, as, a, uh, as you know, it's like a, a spiritual figure, an angel at the end, also shows up at the very beginning narrating the thing. Whereas if, at least in the production I saw, where if you listen to the original recording, the, uh, the narration is done by the actor or the singer who actually plays horse lover fat. Also, nowhere in the program notes was it explained what the relationship between horse lover fat and Philip K. Dick 
was it was i mean i didn't see it so i mean it left to why why fat why you know <laughs> we know why but i'm not sure it was made clearly enough that point was established clearly enough in the in the booklet that was handed out but um the um bill the what, aspects, what was the theater what was the theater itself like was it a big uh uh like what was the capacity for no, the audience? it was a small theater with you know ranked rows of seating so it was uh I had a, a very good seat in the third row near the edge where I could get it. You know, the, the, one of the producers put me there, a producer, so I could I could get the best view of where most of the action was occurring. I see. And it was, um, and had some problems with it. Part, part of the problem is this. Remember, this is MIT. It's the Media Lab. Um, and they do experimental things. Some of the experiments... Are wonderful with the uh, with sound with the hyper instruments, where you can play something monophonically and electronically be converted to something symphonic, for example, you know. But uh, and they they did have a new concept that I'll tell you about later in, with regard to what Mini did uh, the, about the synchronicity music. It was really that was right on. But the pro- what the theater design was. It was not entirely satisfactory. It's kind of a small, to me, kind of a small theater. In the original Pompidou production in France, apparently they did away with scenery and just had towers and, you know, television project, uh, television sets and towers or screens or whatever. So the whole thing was kind of uh, done bare st- stage, but with all electronic effects. There was something similar done here, but it was a, um, it was a bit more elaborate. There were, uh, Room, uh, rooms shown as depicted with walls that were made of aluminized mylar that could be either reflective or you could see through depending on who was behind them. And a, vid- a lot of video camera work. So what does that mean? It means the director himself, because the, the, the cameraman had sprained his ankle, so he had, the director himself was on stage participating with the, with the other artists uh, but holding a video camera so that you could follow them both on on stage and on a couple of TV sets and on a big screen up uh, to the left. The screen was uh, intended to look like a cloud, so uh, it, it did not give totally clear images, but things were a bit distorted, and the TV sets just showed whatever was being projected. Now, in the, in the book, TV does play a role, because messages like the King of Felix cipher are conveyed that way. And there's also at the end, um, Horse Lover Fat is just sitting in front of his TV waiting and watching for his commission, for the word of the next savior, the returning savior, the fifth savior to come back. So uh, TV had to be a part of it. But the way it was done, I thought was obtrusive. my personal reaction, I mean, uh, experimentally, it was interesting. Was it successful? I don't know. I commented to the director that because all the, the uh, he was dressed in black and there were some other stagehands all in black who participated in the action. I commented it reminded me of those sort of backstage um, assistants at Kabuki, Japanese Kabuki theater, who were dressed completely in black, including masks over the face. And in a, in a on a dark on a dark stage, you're not really supposed to notice them. It says they're invisible, moving stuff around in the background. But here, even though he's dressed in black, but he's right up front 
in the center holding a video camera interacting with, with people and it was anything but uh, unobtrusive it was uh, just <laughs> highly visible and um, it didn't I, you know it didn't entirely work for me that's all did I can you, say did you get a sense that it was intended to be metadramatic or was it was the director on stage for instance for the benefit of the, the screens overhead like was he was he trying to, to be self-reflexive well, don't forget, it wasn't the director wasn't supposed to be on stage himself. It was supposed to be a cameraman who uh, oh. who had sprained his ankle. But there's definitely a meta quality to it, and it broke the fir- it broke the fourth wall. So you could, so I found it difficult to immerse myself fully in what the story was, even though you know because there's there's this guy, and not just the guy, other actors, other singers would be wandering around with video cameras too, showing scenes in back rooms. That I question the relevance of. Uh, yeah. There, there are scenes with uh, someone uh, in, you know, there's a back room with a bathtub and a toilet, and someone's constantly getting it into and out of the bathtub and wiping yourself down with a towel, fully dressed. Um, and I was, what, what is this about? How is this? And why is this being projected on a television set on the side? I mean, what is the relevance or on the screen? It's just. Uh, <laughs> but I did. I shared a photo uh, with David, which shows uh, I, I couldn't really take pictures during the production it, itself. But before it started, uh, I shared a photo with a. Uh, there was a pile of kipple on the floor. If you all remember what kipple is, you know just. Sure. And uh, and uh, there was. Was it replicating? Set. Did they manage to do that? <laughs> no, no, but it, it was in a sense because it was uh, someone had set up a, a TV camera in front of it. The director set up a TV camera in front of it, and you could see its replica on the big cloud-like screen. So it was, uh, you know, Kipple was reproducing in the cloud, which somehow is a, is a, a real metaphor for our current age. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah. so... Are they planning? Was this like a one-time show? It was a one-shot, but who knows what? It, it, I think what they're planning on doing is taking it to, I think Todd said to China next. God knows what the Chinese will make out of it. But it was, uh, I mean, there was some parts I thought were very effective, and I'll, I'll, I, I don't want to, I don't want to put this piece this piece down. I had problems with the visuals. That's why I said, listen to the recording, um, but. I, it's a really wonderful piece of, of music. It's just that without, uh, because of the fact that uh, actors doubled parts and you're not quite sure who's playing what, who's supposed to be singing what, especially without a libretto, it's hard to, it's a bit hard to follow and all this, this video stuff going on. Uh, the pink beam was, I thought, effectively portrayed. There was a series of uh, what looked like doorways that are made out of uh, light tubes LEDs or whatever that can uh, flash in different colors at the moment of what he called the pink beam explosion. You didn't see a, a beam of light hitting the singer's head who was playing horse lover fat. What you saw is that the uh, these frameworks or doorways of, uh, uh, of light constructed of light tubes would suddenly turn bright pink and or flash back and forth. Um, and I thought that was an effective moment as the guy, poor guy, is clutching his head and wondering what's going on with him. The, the singers were all really terrific. There was a uh, uh, Devone Tynes. So I have to comment. This is not um, intended to be a precise, exact replica of the book or a replica of anything 
relating directly to Philip K. Dick or what he looked like or acted like. You know, this is not a movie in which you're getting Paul Giamatti to play Philip K. Dick, although I still like to see that movie if it ever comes out. Um, it, it's it was uh, so there's as with a contemporary opera, they can draw on uh, on any singer who's really talented. It doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. So you wind up with a black performer, Devone Tynes, playing uh, Horse Lover Fat. Uh, I had not, I had no problem with that. I mean, you see that at the Metropolitan Opera all the time. Um, you know, black characters, more black singers appearing. The woman who was, I, I have to look up her name, uh, who played um, Sophia and the narrator, I thought was absolutely wonderful singer, it was also black. Uh, so it's, uh, I think the important thing is to focus on, on the singer and, and the other, uh, uh, the one problem I had, there's a basso profundo, really deep bass, uh, playing Dr. Stone. You remember Dr. Stone is the doctor at the, uh, at the Orange County Medical Center who prescribes Bach flower remedies to fill. Phil says they pronounce Bach, but I spoke to somebody who's a batch, but I spoke to somebody who's a, who speaks Welsh and she says, no, it's Bach, <laughs> just like the composer. Anyway, uh, they, they, you couldn't really understand, or I couldn't really understand more than a few words of what this guy was singing because his voice is so, so deep. But what I did cat, catch was that he was introducing Phil to these flower remedies, but he just gave him a bag of powder and, <laughs> not a little bottle <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and and then was uh, introduced him to uh, Lao Tzu was reading him to him that's in the early part of the book uh, so a lot of this was taken directly from the book and a lot was left out the character Kevin does not appear at all but what I thought was most successful about it uh, uh, the singers were all terrific and especially I thought the Lamptons the uh, these two singers who performed, uh, Linda and Eric Lampton, uh, were just, I thought, fabulous and properly. It, they were tired, just exactly right. They, it, to me, it made them come alive as characters, uh, not just, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't really visualize them in the book, but I thought they was perfectly done for this. The, um, the other thing that was noteworthy, in the original production in 87, Minnie appears, although I'm not sure he says anything. He just conducts music. And, you know, all of this performance was conducted and by Macover himself all the way over in one side of the stage. Uh, the instrumentation were piano, a xylophone, and a variety of electronic devices. Um, and this time they did something new. Now, the difference between this performance and the one in the Pompidou Center in 87 is that, or the, the, what you can hear in the recording, is that the, uh, they've substantially improved the, some of the electronic sounds. So, you know, as you can imagine, media have adv sure. has advanced considerably since the last almost 40 years, and especially with what's coming out of MIT. And in this way, and again, Phil Dick was a prophet. You know, the, the synchronicity music, but also the, uh, he described it, uh, his influence on, on AI in particular um, made him a real, made Phil Dick a real hero at the uh, Media Lab. So what they did is, 
that was unique. A graduate, former graduate student, uh, Nina Masuali, I think her name is, had come up with a concept for a device that could play synchronicity music. And it looked like a mason jar filled with lights, Christmas lights, whatever. And it, there were sensors in there. So depending on how she turned it or held it, it would produce random music, synchronicity music, that was modulated by somebody on a laptop computer nearby. So instead of having many, the composer appear as many, which I think would have been Kennedy, they had this woman appear as many. So in another, we have Brent Minnie undergoing sex change. But the, the point is that uh, this whole notion of an AI-controlled device that would react spontaneously to, uh, to the environment, depending on how it was held or used, that was both uh, a realization of, of mini synchronicity music and at the same time um, right on the forefront of experimentation of what was coming out of the media lab, which is what the media lab is really good for. They're defining new, new structures, new standards for performance, uh, not just in this opera, but it could be used anywhere. And so that was exciting to see, but confusing. Because there's no understanding of who right. is this person? Who is this woman wandering around on stage with a jar full of Christmas lights? You know, no explanation. And I had to infer it after the fact by seeing who was doing what. And uh, that's why I think the audience was left a little bit confused. The, the applause was, was uh, substantial, put it that way. <laughs> um, and uh, I thought, the, as I said, I thought the singing performances, all of them were were done. The the the, the uh, singers were were fabulous. Uh, sopranos, mezzo, and uh, bass, baritone, and this basso profundo, just terrific. The, the racial dimension you mentioned uh, uh, is really interesting. Um, to my mind, Phil was very much a Caucasoid, and uh, <laughs> for better and for worse, uh, that's yeah, this oh. comes out in the literature. Um, were, were they? Uh, uh, professional actors or, or affiliated with MIT? Professional singers, yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, they have quite a, a list of... Uh, uh, I've got a uh, uh, the program book here I could, at some point I can quote. Or I'll say, Dave, would you like to... Uh, which Dave am I talking to? <laughs> would you like to receive it? <laughs> you can send it to either of us. You want a copy of the I'd program book? Yeah, I'd love I'll, I'll send you one if you want as a souvenir of this. You can put a photo of it up um, or even show pic. I, I can still get photos from the press office of the various performers, yeah, uh, performers, yeah, participants, whatever. Yeah. 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 So, um, I know where do I get one of those? So many Davids involved in dickheadism. So, um, <laughs> especially they, as, that's right. I mean, with Lord running clam, at least we have that to call him. So we don't have to get into the, you know, right. And at least you're a bill, so that helps. <laughs> but um, listen, I know the listeners are going to be throwing stuff at me because I'm the one that has to wrap things up. Um, but we'll have Bill back just to chat, Phil, I'm sure, at some point um, in general. But we just wanted to get quick first thoughts on, on seeing it because okay. you, know, you were the one that got to do that. And... Um, you know, and I, I really appreciate you hopping on this morning and, and, and doing that because um, behind the scenes, everybody, I hit Bill with this last night. So um, <laughs> so I was really glad he was able to do that. Um, 
to do this and talk to us. Is there any last thoughts you want to give about um, the opera before we go? Um, I'm glad that I got to see it because I'm not sure I'd ever get to see another production of it again, put it that way. It's a rare event. And seeing it is, hearing it, I should say, more than seeing it in this renewed production was, was quite special. So uh, I'm grateful and grateful for any work done behind the scenes that may have helped get me in. And I just want to put a word out there that I think they need the jug band from the simulacra in, in the next one. <laughs> and Professor Wilson and I might be pretty sensitive on the race thing because we just read The Man Whose Teeth Are All Alike for the next episode, which is not one of the yeah. more progressive works on, on that issue. So we may be particularly sensitive right now on that. Um, but... Uh, but wait, one one last question. Um, yeah. Did you say it, it, it was it was it actually filmed to be? Will it be available on YouTube or anything like that? Or it was that was all part. There of it? was it. I don't know. I asked the cameraman sitting next to me who was shooting the whole thing. We were just saving the whole performance on video. What was going to become of it? And he didn't really know. When I speak to Todd Macover, I'll find out more. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it would be interesting if we could see it the way it was shown other than that you just have to rely on you know a few pictures and uh and there yeah. there were there were a couple of articles about it in local publications in the boston globe and in the boston musical intelligencer you can look both of those up but they weren't reviews so much as interviews with todd macover describing the, the production before it started i really don't know what other critics thought of it other than as i said uh, running into lloyd schwartz at the performance and whose whose uh opinions seem to match mine you know really wonderful musically and a little more than a little confusing uh for anyone not initiated into the world of philip a dick and even for me without a libretto like who's doing what and why are they doing this anyway yeah so uh, let, let's hope maybe it will be out on video and things will become more transparent and uh, we would love to have Todd on too, so you can send him uh, send him our way too. We'd uh, of course uh, think sure. that's important. Um, so uh, for all the dickheads that are out there, um, if you want more Bill Cyril, and who wouldn't, you can find him on our panel on uh, the Vallis incident um, with Tessa Dick and Ted Hand. So again, I highly recommend that. We'll put the link to that episode in our show notes. Um, that is a really fantastic episode that can give you a lot of insight into the real life incident that inspired both the mm. book and the opera. So um, that's uh, key to this story as well. So, um, Bill, do you want people to find you or no? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, <laughs> what a question. Um, if anyone finds me, you're welcome to me. Okay. So, um, well, Bill's very active in the PKD fan group. So if any of our listeners uh, are out there on um, Facebook in the PKD fan group, you will you will find. Yeah. Um, on my own personal page, I don't usually accept rec friend requests from people I haven't directly interacted with or or, or know uh, yeah, personally. I just get overwhelmed with too many. You know, I, I'm not into collecting people, but. Um, <laughs> But I, I, you know, anyone in our community who I have a, a relationship with, I certainly accept uh, friendships. But, you know, better to find me on the uh, uh, fan page or the uh, the Philippian 
uh, the Zach Woods uh, page where I occasionally comment. So, all right, great. Thank you. It's yeah, been, and, been great uh, talking to you. Yeah, yeah. We, I always love talking to you, Bill. All right. Well, folks, uh, we'll uh, talk again soon. Um, so, as always, dickheads, keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid. <laughs> Take care.